Hello, my name is Justin McClure, and I'm here today with Will Sloan. And you're listening to The Important Cinema Club. And today, we're going back to Hong Kong, which we go to all the time because we love those filmmakers. We're talking about Johnny Toe. And one of the reasons we're talking about him is because there's a big retrospective of his work going on at the Tiff Bell Lightbox here in town. So I think we've both dipped into it, uh, mm-hmm. in and out, seen some of the stuff. They're playing them on 35mm, and the thing about Johnny Toe is that he's such a technically proficient filmmaker, even in a place like Hong Kong, which is usually like rushed and make them quick and it looks a little bit cheap, that to see them on the big screen, and we've seen some 35mm archival prints where they're just pristine, Mm. is the way that those movies are meant to be seen. Dan, the way that color looks on film. I've been watching these movies and then I think of all the shot-on-digital Hong Kong action movies that have come out in my adult lifetime, and it just makes me want to cry. And that difference between the technical presentation is something that is very personal to me because when I first started getting into Johnny Toe and Hong Kong cinema, these DVDs with his films on them look like shit. Like, they looked really bad. Mm. Me and Will saw A Hero Never Dies, and on DVD, all the colors were blown out, so you lose all the detail and anything that was white Mm. when you see it projected, and it looks perfect. I think I also get a little sad because... All the movies today, I sound like Peter Bogdanovich, all the movies today, but, but like so much can be color corrected mm. afterwards. And back then they had to fucking make these colors on the set, you know? Yeah, you had gels and shit. limited time and limited resources to just make it work. And before we get into just like uh, old people complaining about movies today and kids today. And the sound is so loud. <laughs> Let's talk about Johnny Toe himself. This is a filmmaker who often gets lumped in with people like John Woo or Choi Hark. Yeah, he started around the same time as those filmmakers, but he really came into his own after the handover in 1997, when he became kind of the great white hope of uh, Hong Kong cinema. And his best movies are very much a reaction to the John John Woo kind of maximalist, um, super violent style, where his is much more minimalist, much more derived from Jean-Pierre Melville. And he's playing in the same area with cops and robbers and super cool uh, heroes who can do almost everything. But the thing about Johnny Toe Cinema, and you realize this the more that you watch, is that he's all about like deconstructing those things and kind of playing with the form and the way that they're presented. For example, we saw a movie called The Hero Never Dies. And on the cover of it, it looks like all the heroic bloodshed, gun in each hand, fist-pumping film that, as someone who's getting into John Woo, you want Hong Kong to deliver more of those things. Mm. And what the film actually ends up being is that, up to a point, because Johnny Toe films, almost always when they start, it's all about these super awesome people who are, for all intents and purposes, invincible and can do anything. And then what Johnny Toe does is he kind of breaks that and where do they go from there? I think he's also much less romantic about, you know, the, the Hong Kong triads mm-hmm. and the mobsters. A movie like his election series is very much about how there's really no honor among thieves. Whereas mm-hmm. uh, the John Woo movies are so much about, you know, loyalty, honor, brotherhood, not much deeper than that, but like those big gold-plated ideas. But at the same time, Johnny Toe is also 
a director who is in love with the grand melodramatic uh, gestures, just like John Woo. Mm -hmm. Like, again, going back to Hero Never Dies, that film is filled with, like, look how big this is. It's not meant to be realistic, mm -hmm. but I want it to just be a wave that crashes on the audience. Two things about Johnny Toe and my relationship to him. One of the things that I think is interesting about Johnny Toe is he's one of those filmmakers who personifies the difficult relationship between art and commerce. Mm -hmm. He's a guy who runs his company, Milkway, and to keep his company afloat, he has to direct a lot of movies that are impersonal to him. So he directs Cantonese comedies for the, the Lunar New Year season, mm -hmm. which is like their summer blockbuster season. Like romantic comedies, uh, he just kind of churns them out. And he's publicly said that those films are compromised and that he does them just to keep his company going. And most of them don't even come out here. We don't see them. The movies that we love here, his gangster movies, are generally not that successful in Hong Kong. Mm -hmm. But those are the ones he cares about. And also, now that the Hong Kong film industry has more or less been swallowed up by the mainland Chinese film industry, and he's somebody who is dealing with censorship censorship and if he wants to make a movie in the mainland he can't depict the triads like he used to mm -hmm. he has to follow censorship rules and when you read him interviewed for example the interview he gave to cineast magazine recently he thinks that all of his mainland productions even the ones that people over here love like drug war mm -hmm. he thinks that they're irredeemably compromised basically and johnny toe's saying that does have more weight because he did start in the factory line of filmmaking like in the 70s into the 80s he was working on tv shows he cut his teeth on shows like the legend of the condor heroes which is a big tv show that happened before going into those comedies and melodramas most famously all about ah long which was a film that starred chow young fat and had no action no big comedic beats was the kramer versus kramer of hong kong i've heard that movie pause as an important film in his career because it's a movie where his camera sort of breaks free. It's a movie where he starts doing inventive things with tracking shots and stuff like that. If we're talking about Johnny Toe, the one thing that you can find in all these films, even though he's working in every genre, is that they are specifically his movies. Mm -hmm. Like the way that he shoots them, the themes that he deals with, all have a little bit of him inside of it. And what is that? Because I don't always see it, to be honest. So on a technical level, his love of things like wide-angle lenses, technocranes, long shots are present in almost everything. And in the kind of subtextual level, like I said before, I think that what interests him a lot are these moral and societal structures and the way that they can kind of be dismantled and how do you get away from that. For example, Office, which was a semi-sequel to All About All Long because it stars both of the same people and deals with the same thing, which is the economic growth of China and how they're dealing with it. In Office, which is like this big budget musical shot on all these crazy sets, what the film is about at the end of the day is that you have to sell your soul to succeed mm -hmm. and anybody that tries to do differently will be crushed and be thrown away. It was interesting for me to read him, you know, all but disown his mainland productions because his mainland productions like Office are like, they're so they're very smart. They're very much interrogating what you're allowed to show in a mainland production and why. So like this week, I rewatched uh, Drug War, his big movie about kind of this cat and mouse game between a big mainland drug lord and the uh, 
tenacious police detective after him. Yeah, and the two of them forming an uneasy alliance so that the drug lord can get a reduced sentence. It's a movie that, spoiler, but it but it ends with uh, this really bleak and horrifying shot of the drug lord getting a lethal injection. So we um, should explain to people that don't know the way that Chinese censorship works, and even me and Will, we just know it from a distance, yeah. is that like the villains cannot get away with it. They must be punished at the end. Yeah. And if any hero does something bad and even comes to the side of good at the end, he must be punished as well. Mm-hmm. And there's no way around that. So the second you see a villain on screen, if it's a mainland Chinese production, that person will be punished by the end of the movie. Now, the way that the villain gets the lethal injection at the end of the movie, there's nothing cathartic about it. It's horrifying. It, it's horrifying. And it's how the movie ends. Mm-hmm. And I, I'm really not entirely sure how to feel about it because you can sense Johnny Toe being like, okay, this is what I have to do. Here it is. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, there's nothing in it to make the censors object no you know? and like the, it is it is horrible and it may and and if you were you know a drug lord watching it the message that you would get is crime doesn't pay bitch and johnny toe himself has said that the censorship the way that it works is he has no direct contact with them other than mail hmm. so he sends in his scripts and then they send him back notes that they have months later and that's the way that they work. And it's interesting, too. Like, they can be... The censors can be very arbitrary in mm-hmm. China. Like, uh, Jia Zhangke's film, A Touch of Sin, from a few years ago, which was, you know, like, about as subversive as it gets for a mainland production, mm-hmm. t- showing the, the terrible conditions that the working class live in in China. That was a movie that was approved by the censors, basically until it went onto the festival circuit. And, and people started, started writing about it. People started writing about it. And then the censors were like, oh, uh, actually, you can't release this movie. <laughs> yeah, it's bad. Yeah, yeah. But maybe it's because Johnny Toe did work so much in the industry that maybe he has a little bit of clout than other people has. Because, like, after All About All Long, he became, like, a Choi Hark light. Mm-hmm. Uh, he worked with Choi Hark on things like The Big Heat, which is an ultra-violent, like, gunplay film. He made uh, The Barefooted Kid, which is a very kind of postmodernist uh, mm-hmm. kung fu film inspired by, like, Shaw Brothers' Chang Che films. He directed a bunch of Stephen Chow comedies, mm-hmm. uh, The Mad Monk and uh, Justice My Foot. Do you see any of the Johnny Toe you love in those Stephen Chow comedies? Only in the way that he shoots and puts together movies. I could be shown a film and someone would go, who directed this film? And I would go, oh, Johnny Toe. In the same way that you could recognize a film directed by Brian De Palma, Mm -hmm. in that he has particular things that obsess him in the way that he can tell a story. And those are present over and over again. But the difference between Brian De Palma is that I love Brian De Palma, but like he goes back to the same, you know, bag of tricks over and over again. Mm-hmm. While Johnny Toe, for example, is obsessed with long oneers. Uh, this could be seen in a film like Sparrow, where you are introduced to all the uh, pickpockets in one long take on a Hong Kong street, or something like Breaking News, which is the intro to all the characters and then the gunfight that happens after in one long, unbroken seven-minute take. His cinema, like visually, is very like mathematical. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's he's very interested in the way bodies can be arranged in space. Mm-hmm. He's always using every part of the frame. He's using all the planes in the frame. There are many shots in his movies where it'll be like seven or eight gangsters all in the cinemascope frame at the same time, you know, in different levels. And he's interested in the way they move. So there's a scene in Drug War that struck me this time where there's an exchange of drugs that takes place in traffic during a red light, where the inspector, undercover as a drug dealer, uh, runs to another car and drops off a suitcase. And the way the camera kind of follows him through these cars and the camera is always making a note of, 
in this traffic jam, there are like three or four cars you need to know. Mm -hmm. And it does it in a very unshowy way, kind of laying out where all the chess pieces are on this chessboard. I think that the pleasures of Johnny Toe is something that as a teenager, when I saw A Hero Never Dies, I didn't understand because I wanted a film like John Woo. And to a certain point, A Hero Never Dies is like John Woo, Mm -hmm. but... He's more interested in that film when an action scene uh, breaks out in how can he present this differently than you would usually see it. And you can very clearly delineate like, in this action scene of Hero Never Dies, it takes place on a dark street with two groups of people shooting each other from the cars. In this scene, everybody is on the roof of the building they're in and they don't know who's shooting at them. Or in this scene, the gag is that everybody being shot is flying over the tables mm. like they're doing some kind of choreographed dance. But I must say, A Hero Never Dies felt more like John Woo than I expected it to. Mm. It had more kind of visceral energy to mm. it. Like it has scenes where the camera as a tracking shot just like swoops through the hospital and up the stairs and that's something that like the camera it, the camera moves throughout his movies but it never it never calls attention to itself in in quite that like Scorsese-ish way I, I would say that he actually does that a lot yeah. but you you usually don't notice it or it's one of the films that he's made a conscious decision like The Mission or Exiled where I'm doing this in a very careful style where I don't want to call too much attention to myself. Like A Hero Never Dies which is a story about like two amazing I guess hitman slash bodyguards and the bond that they have and the way that affects their lives is one of those Johnny Toe films like I watched so many and they all have these same themes of these superhuman characters like they're introduced from the beginning making impossible shots or at one point one of them has a laser sight on his head and he doesn't even see it and he just like realizes it's there like that's how awesome they are Mm -hmm. and then like what if we took everything away from them how would they react from that point on Mm -hmm. so it's a mixture of like I'm going to take this well-worn premise and go at it from a different angle. But at the same time, he's going to give you like what you expect. Right. But whereas The Mission, which came out maybe a year or two later, and which I think is probably the most revolutionary mm-hmm. film in terms of defining his style, it strips out all that kind of over-the-top emotion and... The characters are much more inward and the visually it almost becomes like a long series of these static tableaus Mm -hmm. um, that are each building blocks and juxtaposed next to each other. They create, you know, uh, a remarkable effect, but it's like there's not a lot of wild camera work. It's it's there are interesting tableaus that 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 make a dynamic use of the space within that one shot and then juxtaposed next to each other. When Johnny Toe talks about like how he shoots a gunplay scene, he said that every bullet counts. And that can be seen in the mission where these gunplay scenes play out, like Will said, in these long tableaus with the actual moments where bullets are fired mean something Mm -hmm. big. Like scenes don't just end, they reach a climax. I often don't find myself particularly excited during his movies. Mm -hmm. They don't raise my pulse. Oftentimes they're more interesting to observe so there's a scene in Exiled, which is a movie that I saw for the first time this week, when it's kind of a long shot of this apartment complex as you see the shootout happening in the apartment complex, almost like a shot from Playtime or something where mm-hmm. you see people like in different rooms and they're running down the stairs and the camera kind of follows them from a distance down the stairs. I don't want to say there's no energy, mm-hmm. like it, ha- but it has a very particular kind of energy where it's just more, 
it's just more an interesting image than it is something to get your pulse racing. I would almost associate that with a phenomenon I've seen here or there, which is it's a filmmaker who distinctly understands what they're doing when it comes to cinema and wanting to move beyond that. Right. Like, if Johnny Toe wanted to give you, like, a pulse-pounding, like, edge-of-your-seat gunfight, he could easily do that. Like, he worked in the commercial sphere for so long, but he's reached a point in his career where he's like, what else can I do differently? Well, one of the movies I saw this month at the retrospective was uh, The Heroic Trio, which I'd I was surprised to realize I'd never seen all the way through before, but it was a wacky uh, female superhero movie from Hong Kong in the 90s, which has uh, Michelle Yeoh, Maggie Chung, and Anita Moy, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's like exactly what you would want from a movie like this, you know, full of wackiness and people, you know, fast camera movements and crazy edits. And... Like it's true Hark. Yeah, it's like, Choi Like that's Hark. what Johnny Toe is yeah. doing in that film, working with Chin Su Tung, who was like the a go-to person for like flying swordsman. And it's one of those films that when it was released for a long time was the touchstone when it came to like Hong Kong action cinema, the look how crazy this is. There's a uh, motorcycles being shot with like a boomerang through the air. And at the end they fight like a desiccated corpse of the master super with, villain. With stop motion effects and everything. And it also is like full of uh, hashtag problematic stuff. Like mm-hmm. uh, when one of the, one of the heroic, trio heroically like blows up a bunch of the like children who have been kidnapped because they're like these kids haven't been socialized you know they're not uh they won't be able to live a normal life (laughs) or what about the baby who dies yeah when its head lands on the nail (laughs) god yeah that's why it feels like johnny toe he did all this stuff and if you look at his cinema as it went along especially the projects that were the most personal to him he's basically stripping dialogue out of the films oh yeah and telling them in a visual way to the point that the way that the music and the visuals interact they are essentially musicals without musical numbers a lot of them don't even need dialogue you could take the dialogue out and just Mm -hmm. have it be like a pantomime silent film there's one of his films throwdown which is about like a judo champion there are whole segments of his films that are just driven by the music and that's all you have Mm -hmm. and he said that that film was inspired by akira kurosawa then you have a film like Sparrow that is 100% inspired by the work of people like uh, Jean Godard in his early period or by um, Jacques Demy and his musicals. The climax of that film is a contest between two pickpocket gangs where they're just walking across the street and they have to pick each other's pockets. And it's played like the most suspenseful thing in slow motion and is just a craftsman and artist at the top of his game that he can pull that off. And that's a film that... He just wanted to make so badly. They shot it over five years whenever they had breaks shooting other films. And then there are movies like uh, the Johnny Halliday vehicle. Vengeance. Vengeance, which I think was a movie. Did he make that with French money? It must have been, right? Vengeance is almost like a primer for dummies to Johnny Toe. Like, we want to sell Johnny Toe on an international stage. What are the things that we perceive people really like? Let's put them all in one movie and try to kind of release it internationally you know Alain Delon was supposed to be in that movie that would have been crazy it would have been great but, yeah uh, but uh, like Johnny Holiday's fine in it and that's a movie and uh Exiled is a movie where like all of the character of the actors mm. is sort of drained away like in a sort of uh Jean-Pierre Melville or dare I say Brasson style where it's like they are they are stripped to their base elements mm. and you're I guess the the charisma from them is supposed to just come from the fact that they are very still and and cool, you know? 
But I think that even when we're dealing with that kind of coolness in Johnny Toe's film, and he always sets it up right from the beginning, there's a level of kind of camaraderie and friendship between characters in the best of his films. Like The Mission, which we talked about before, those big tableaus, oftentimes what is being sold in them is that friendship between these guys hanging out. Like there's one long scene where they're just waiting for someone and they start to kick a piece of garbage between each other. And as it goes along and you see that playfulness, and that playfulness is something that you you see in a lot of films to define the characters beyond there. I could make the impossible shot. Well, you know, I like Johnny Toe a lot, Mm -hmm. uh, but I think one reason why he's never become a filmmaker who I felt the need to see every single movie of is because he's always been a little cold to the touch for me. Yeah, I've never felt that. Yeah. I I can understand why you would feel that way because his films are, like you said, mathematically calculated, but in his best films, and he's made a lot of films, and some of them not that good Mm -hmm. that there is they can connect that level of kind of friendship between the characters that it allows me to get into it and care about what's happening the funny thing about Exiled is I know you watched it very recently Mm -hmm. and that you did find it cold right yeah I liked it uh, but but it just didn't it held me at arm's length for the whole thing what's interesting about Exiled it it is a meta sequel to the mission Mm. so like I bet Johnny Toe the way that he approached it was it's continuing these characters stories but not really Mm. so the emotion that you would have invested in the mission would then transfer to exiled because it's all the same cast that's it well i mean i i liked seeing all of these like you know hong kong legends like uh, simon yam and uh anthony wong and and of course the the chubby guy who's always in lamb suet lamb suet who was a grip in a movie and suddenly he got a role and since then he became part of that like Johnny Toe um, ensemble. Whenever he shows up in a Johnny Toe movie I smile a little bit. <laughs> He's you in know? every Chinese movie yeah. now. But I'm also talking about Johnny Toe in the sense that like he's this great like auteur who his style goes from like every movie that he makes. But I'd be remiss not to say that one of the things that he does in his productions through Milkway is a collaborative effort. Like a dozen of his films are actually co-directed with his writer, Mm -hmm. Y Cafe. And like he said multiple times that like the way that he breaks down films and they bring ideas is done as a group. Like all his films have like nine credited writers. And he says there's actually more than that because they all sit in a room like a TV show and break the story and then break the beats. So the films that he makes with Wakafe, how much do you sense he regards those as personal films? I think that he does regard them as personal films in different ways. Mm-hmm. If you look at something like Running on Karma, the thing that Wakai Fei brings to it is a level of weirdness that is not always in Johnny Toe films mm-hmm. because Running on Karma is a film where Andy Lau, the biggest pop star ever in China, wears a muscle suit and is a stripper and he fights supervillains and is also a detective. But the entire film hinges on the idea that there's a woman that he falls in love with that he cannot save, so she dies. And he discovers at the end, I don't want to get into too many spoilers, that the only way that he can be at peace is by accepting the cycle of life and the way that karma works. Mm -hmm. And that's like the ultimate Johnny Toe example is that these superhumans are always kind of crippled as the movie goes on and you don't always get what you want but by the end in most of them they achieve a level of either peace or understanding or happiness even if it ends with them losing everything or their death uh so i'm interested to see where his career goes from here though because he seems very ambivalent about where he's at right now because he he talks about how 
when he's interviewed on the matter, he can mm-hmm. make a choice between making a personal film for for no money mm-hmm. in Hong Kong or a much more spectacular film, irredeemably compromised in the mainland. He's got a company to keep afloat. But looking at his IMDb, he was so busy right after the handover, making film after film Mm. after film, and it's just slowed to a crawl to the point that his last picture, Three, which came out two years ago... There's Which been, I didn't love. I didn't like either. Yeah. Uh, there's been no follow-up to that, and there's nothing on the horizon either. You know, uh, watching Drug War this time, I really like Drug War. It's, mm. It feels like a much more conventional movie than something like The Mission. It's it's much more of a straight-up uh, kind of commercial thriller, but that's okay. I mean, it really works. Yeah. But, but I was more conscious of the mainland holds on it. I was more conscious of the fact that it's partly an anti-drug propaganda piece. And, you know, we can say, and and I actually believe it, that it's interesting to watch Johnny Toe wrestle with that and, and try to interrogate that. And I think he does a good job with it. But at the end of the day, it's not it's not that subversive. No, you know? it's not. What Johnny Toe in that film is specifically trying to do, I feel, is just give a more well-rounded portrait to everything that's going on. Mm-hmm. Like, in the early scenes, they capture a busload of people who are going through the country with drugs up their ass. Right. And he holds on a woman weeping and trying to shit as, like, police coldly watch her doing this. Yeah. And you can feel Johnny Toe going, like, these are not villainous people. Like, they go through pain. Like, they're doing this for... But then I could also see a Chinese censor look at it and be like, good for you, Johnny Toe. You showed what happens to these people. And that's the perfect kind of, like, balancing act that he has to play. Maybe he's just tired of playing that... Anyway, it's not like he's Troy Hark just, you know... That sold out. <laughs> just sold out and is, and is kind of soullessly making propaganda films now. He's he's a much more interesting filmmaker than that. Um, but I, I, I still can't help feel a little bittersweet about a movie like Drug War. Uh, I understand where you're coming you know, from. But I, even though I think it's a really good movie. I do think that what's missing from the way that we talk about Johnny Toe are some like straight ahead film theorists and academics talking about him in a context that's not directly linked to the fact that he makes popular movies. Mm. And I think that what kind of hobbles him a lot too is that he has made so many movies Mm. that people feel, you know, a little bit out of their depths to talk about him, Mm -hmm. which is the reason that in the English language there's one book written about him and nothing else. That's interesting because he, he, I think... I think academia likes him. I know I've read, mm-hmm. you know, I took a Chinese film class and there was uh, a fair amount of talk about him. Yeah. People... Just what he's doing visually with, yeah. with editing. But know. like the fact that he hasn't become like a household name beyond, oh, Johnny Toe, he made like good crime films. He does cool stuff. Mm-hmm. I feel that there's like, we're, we're on the precipice of just getting to the point where people are highlighting like the ones that are like classics that are masterpieces and letting people know you can watch these versions like the day criterion releases a johnny toe film is the day that i feel that cineas start talking about him in a different well, way vengeance was in the official competition at con yeah but that movie's not that good yeah. so it's but okay he, he's got some institutional recognition he does and um just before we stop talking about him if i wanted to recommend some pictures that he's directed and you want to go into his filmography i would have to say that you should watch the mission which we've talked about a lot because that is the first go-to one Mm -hmm. and then i would say watch one of his romantic comedies like needing you which is andy lau and sammy chang in this like crazy office comedy still shot in the style that he does all of his other stuff or throwdown which i mentioned which was the judo film and it's a different way to approach 
kind of the action picture. Lifeline is a lot of fun. It's like the ultimate fireman movie in the way that like Backdraft never could be because in Lifeline, it's real. Like these fire stunts are actually happening. Or if you just want something that's easy to digest, Running Out of Time, which is one of those like perfectly calibrated blockbuster films, which is about like a cop having to face off against a master criminal who is one step ahead of him every time. But this master criminal is played by the incredibly charming Andy Lau, and he's also dying of cancer, so that's playing into it. So any of those films, if you want to get started to see like who he is, that those are perfect ones to jump into. Man, have you ever seen Wu Yen? This is one of his uh, Lunar New Year comedies uh, from the early 2000s. Uh, it was interesting to watch a Johnny Tell movie that looked that shitty. <laughs> oh, really? Just visually, yeah. <laughs> Um, but it, like, yeah, kind of like a historical farce. Yeah, you know. that is for Chinese audiences and Chinese <laughs> o- audiences over only. Two hours. Yeah. Oh my god. Oh man. So if you want to contact us, our email address is importantcinemaclubpodcast at gmail.com. This week on our Patreon, we talked about the <laughs> career of megastar Mark Hamill in honor of him uh, taking the lead role in an upcoming little film called. Star Wars. <laughs> we ended up watching a film called Midnight Ride, a 90s Mark Hamill as a serial killer vehicle. From Canon Films. And Corvette Summer, which was his direct follow-up to Star Wars, which is famous for tanking his career. <laughs> so for $5, you can listen to that episode and every episode we've done before that. Yeah. And I have to say this, that from last episode onward at filmtrap.com I'm adding more show notes and like trailers and lists of the movies oh, that wow. we talk about so if you're like these dudes did just talk way too fast and I didn't have time to have a pen and paper go to that website and you'll find a listing of all that stuff and subscribe to the newsletter if you want because we post tons of stuff uh, what, what Justin really needs is a, a wealthy benefactor. Yes. To, if to, um, a patron would like, like to give us $5,000 a month. If there's <laughs> a rich widow out there who needs a husband. Uh, uh, picture us as the James Joyce of two white guys talking about film <laughs> podcasts and become our patron. Yes. <laughs> Next week, it's uh, starting to become the holiday season, Will. So uh, we're going to take it easy and have ourselves a little party. Yeah. When you sing Christmas movies, what Christmas movie do you think of? Oh, uh, Ernest Saves Christmas, of course. A picture that I have never seen. What? I've never seen it. Oh my God. (laughs) Yep, that's right. (laughs) So we're going to throw a little bit of a party and we're going to watch Ernest Save Christmas together with Emily Milling and uh, Matthew Kumar of Loose Cannons fame and the bully on the previous episodes he's appeared with Mm -hmm. of Will Sloan. And we'll be watching Jingle All the Way, Ernest Save Christmas, Home Alone 2, and Scrooged. Uh, you're springing that on me right now for the first time. <laughs> You've okay. seen Home Alone 2. You've seen Scrooge. Yeah. So you don't need to watch them again. You okay. can talk about them. So make sure to tune in next week. It'll be a big party. And I want to start teasing our December 25th episode because we release these at the beginning of every week. So Christmas actually falls on a Monday. And I promise that we will get it out on the Monday. And it's going to be a special Christmas surprise that I'm not going to tell uh, you guys what it is. You're going to have to come in on a December 25th Christmas to see what the episode will <laughs> Spend be. Spend Christmas with your real family, <laughs> the Important Cinema Club. My name is Justin McClue. I'm Will Sloan. Thanks for listening. So I was recently doing research online about Canadian cinema. Uh, it's a topic that actually got 
kind of fired up in me when we did our episode years ago on Paul Gross. Ah, yes. Which is that I picked up a book on the Canadian Film Awards, or the Genies as they used to be called, and while flipping through it was like completely taken aback about how many films I hadn't heard about, and then doing research found were not available at all. Mm-hmm. And there was one of those films, Loyalties, that uh, was nominated for eight awards, and I found its photo in the book that I always wanted to see and never could because it wasn't available. And recently it popped up on uh, TIFF's 150 list, and I did some research like, when did they play it? I probably missed it. And I found that it was playing on Saturday, and I could not go. I went, though. And how did you find it? I was very impressed by it. This is a movie that I had not heard of until you mentioned it to me a week ago. Mm-hmm. And it's the story... It's by... Uh, Anne Wheeler, yeah. yeah. And it's the story of a uh, sort of well-to-do British couple who move to uh, rural Canada uh, so that he can start his dental practice. And the wife feels very much like out of her depth, and she really feels kind of bullied into it by her husband. And meanwhile, they hire a local Métis woman as their uh, just servant Mm -hmm. and the unlikely friendship that emerges between the two women who are both in have both been in different ways victimized by the men in their lives Mm -hmm. and how they bond yeah they they, they bond what what else is there to say but i thought it was just a very impressive movie the way that it kind of showed this unlikely friendship forming i don't know i can't i can't put it into words i was able to find a copy this week because i was like i can't believe it's playing i wonder if it's available anywhere else and i did found one there's a version on youtube it looks terrible if you want to watch it oh it's great on 35 millimeter and i wouldn't recommend watching it there and what it is like will was saying is like a low-key plotless film about like the relationship between these two people and the kind of unavoidable climax that it comes to Mm -hmm. which is harrowing Mm -hmm. and at the end the entirety of it is something that is surprisingly moving especially where it starts and and where it ends up and also shows just how similar kinds of abuse can pop up in in different and unexpected ways and and can affect people from from all over the class system you know and i think that one of the most horrifying things when it comes to this film is the fact that like You can't watch it in any available version. That article I was researching is, I actually went through, like, I keep a list of Canadian cinema uh, and what's available and what's not, and I basically posted a big chunk of it. The fact that as a country, we're just like, man, this has no value. So we're just not going to care about it anymore. Well, as I was watching this movie, you know, on a Saturday afternoon free screening at, at the Lightbox with, I don't know, 15 other people in the audience, I thought that, like, there is a challenge in marketing this mm-hmm. movie, but I sort of feel like at this, in this climate, you could sell a movie by a female filmmaker about a female relationship and that also it touches on issues of abusive relationships, touches on uh, indigenous stories, and, and, and it's a great movie. And, and all of that, you would be able to sell it as a movie in this particular cultural moment. Yeah, and selling it is like a strong word because when I start talking very animated about Canadian cinema to people and I'm like, oh man, it would be amazing if they took even a film like Loyalties and like did a proper transfer, like scanned a print that looks good or even a ma- negative. It, it makes me feel sad that people listening to this might watch the YouTube version mm-hmm. because seeing it on a 35 millimeter print, like there are so many beautiful magic hour shots. Mm-hmm. Like it's a real movie for yeah. God's sake. And And that's the thing is that Canada as a country has just dismissed Canadian film entirely. I mean, Will has said it. I have said it multiple times in my life. And like when I posted that article, some person just replied like, ah, Canadian films suck. 
They're all about boring stuff and suicide. Well, I don't know. With this one, I think there is a way to get people interested. Mm-hmm. I think people are genuinely sincere in that they want to see movies by female filmmakers. Yes. I think people are sincere that they want to hear other kinds of stories told, like indigenous mm. stories. And the way you, you sell it is to say, you want those things. Here's here's a great movie you've never yeah. heard of and that you will have a great experience with. I, I don't know. Canadian films pose a challenge because mm-hmm. we all know that there are like the 10 or 15 that everyone knows. Hey, you ever heard of the movie Cube? Yeah, Cube. And, and like Cube's an example of like, oh, that's the fun one that we yeah. put on the list. And just seeing it over and over again makes your heart sink a little bit because it makes you think, oh, yeah, Cube. That's yeah. that's our fun movie. Yeah, you which know, is fine. Which is fine. Oh, Videodrome. That's yeah. another one of our fun movies. But it's like, it makes you think that the canon is very shallow. And it's not. Yeah. The, there... ca- the canon is actually very deep and mm-hmm. filled with like super impressive motion pictures but like I said before, they're just not available. Mm-hmm. Like I, I, recently I've gotten kind of hooked on the idea of why aren't these films available in libraries? Because libraries are one of the only places these days that people wander into and go like, ah, what do they have? Mm-hmm. This looks interesting. Yeah. Why won't I watch that? And that while library is undeniably a class thing that like upper class people like don't go to libraries and I I mean someone can email me and say that's not true like I go but the fact of the matter is like a lot of people just go like oh I don't need to use libraries like I have everything on my computer why would I go there like who are the people who are cutting library funding it's upper class people who don't use it yeah Yeah, exactly like oh there still is libraries yeah 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 yeah. when like they need to exist because it allows that browsery kind of feeling of oh I'm gonna watch this or even read this book that I've never heard about Mm. and the fact that even that these movies are not available in libraries is probably the biggest stumbling block to From that point, you can start getting it outward a little bit more because once it becomes present, then, you know, people start watching it and then you have to get it on like actual streaming sites like Netflix and then people stumble upon that and so on and so forth and get people talking about it. The thing about like TIFF doing these screenings is I don't want to criticize TIFF too much because it's great that they put on this screening. It's great that they put on the screen, but there isn't there something about the fact that it's a free screening in the afternoon that kind of makes you think, oh, yeah, well, uh, it like it sounds like work because yes. if it was good why would it be for free and tiff did an amazing if you go on their website they did like a top 150 just canadian stuff in general commercials music videos films and there's like essays written about every film and stuff like that but you will only discover that if you specifically go looking for that thing there's that we're making it available but we don't want to advertise it because we know no one will come anyway okay here's my proposal do, do a retrospective of canadian female filmmakers yes and don't just do deepa meta no you know like don't just do sarah Pauly. like i think if you did like a whole retrospective i think i actually think there is an appetite for this i think so too yeah. and i think that there's an appetite as well for something that is important artistically you sell it as you've never seen these films Mm -hmm. these films are not available Mm -hmm. like and these are important and they were ignored back then but now they're like look at them and and how good they are and also they're not work yes you're gonna like them you're good that's the most important thing yeah 